Welcome to the Mama Bear Apologetics Podcast. A podcast where we teach you to roar like a mother. And by roar, we mean recognize the message, offer discernment, argue for a healthier approach, and reinforce these ideas with your kids. Unless you want to growl around your house. I mean, that's cool too. <laughs> You're like, check it, we keep it reels. <laughs> that's so bad. You're awesome. Mama Bear Apologetics is a listener-supported program, so if you like what we do, head on over to the Mama Bear Apologetics website and click support. It's time to rise up, ladies. Rise up, Mama Bears. This might not affect your faith, but it might affect your children's. So welcome to another episode of Mama Bear Apologetics. I'm Hillary. And I'm Amy. And so we're going to kind of continue on with what we were doing in the previous podcast where we were talking about Do Christians think that atheists can't be good without God? And this is going through chapter five of Richard Dawkins' book, Outgrowing God, which is a book that's intended to bring a lot of the new atheist arguments to a children's audience, which of course, isn't that what everybody wants their children to be reading? (laughs) (laughs) So in the previous episode, we kind of gave the background for what we're going to be talking about. And so we're going to go ahead and kind of review what we talked about and, and go over The quotes that are the main crux of what Dawkins is talking about in chapter five. Amy, do you want to read those for us again? uh, The the first main quote. So Dawkins start off by saying, I'm sorry to say that lots of people seem to think that you need to believe in some sort of God, any kind of higher power in order to have any chance of being moral, of being good. Without belief in a higher power, you'd have no basis for knowing right from wrong, good from bad, moral from immoral. So he's definitely coming out and saying that you have to believe in God. Otherwise, you are just completely out on your ear when it comes to what's yeah. good, what's bad, that sort of thing. Or even to well, the ability to act right. Well, I, he, I don't think he's saying that. He's saying that's what Christians Or believe. yeah, that's, that's what the Christians are believing. Excuse me. <laughs> yeah, very big difference. <laughs> so his main crux is that Christians are saying that either atheists can't know good or can't be good. And as we discussed in the previous podcast, we don't believe that's true, but rather the crux of the matter is how do we call good good so we went through the recognize the message and then we went through the offer discernment of the things that we can agree with with Dawkins in this chapter and some of the things we disagreed with and the main thing that we're going to disagree with is I think he's asking the wrong question Uh, instead of saying again I'm going to repeat myself on this one because I I know it's going to be really meaty podcast or you know show me the beef this is the beef (laughs) So I I might repeat myself a little bit, but it's just because this might be new concepts for some people. And I just want to keep repeating it because it's a major, major, major misunderstanding. And that, again, is the question is not, can atheists be good? As we looked in the previous podcast, and by good, we mean moral. Can they do moral things? That's not the right question. And then also the right question is, or the wrong question is, can they know what is moral? We believe that's still the wrong question. The question that Christians would contend with is how can they call good, good? How can they know? Not do they know, how do they know what's good? And so today we're going to go through basically all the different options that people have given for trying to create what's called objective moral values or moral facts. This idea that there are some things that are true for people at all times and all places, or that are wrong for all people at all times and all places. So kind of the the quintessential example of that, I mean, I I don't think we could find any society that sees this as good, is torturing babies for fun. Even when we look at some of the um, ancient Near East religions that did child sacrifice, it Mm -hmm. still wasn't for the purpose of fun. It was for the purpose of they thought they were appeasing the gods. So 
there's certain things that I, I don't think we could postulate a hypothetical society where torturing babies for fun was actually considered good and we shouldn't judge them for that. Right. <laughs> I think we could say, in all honesty, no, that's wrong. I don't care what their religion teaches. I don't care what they think. If they're torturing babies for fun, that's just plain wrong. Well, and you see that too uh, in, I mean, they, they would be banging on the drum so you couldn't hear the infant. And obviously the reason for that is because if you hear your child crying out to you, you're going to go and try and help them. So they were trying to even take away those those things to try and keep you from acting against your better judgment. So you, you can mm. see from there, or just from that small bit, that obviously they knew that it was wrong, but they're just trying to make it as palatable as possible. Yeah, I think that's the concept of trying to outshout your own conscience. Yes. Yeah, a lot of times when in this version, it's kind of like that. Uh, uh, that reminds me of the story from the Holocaust where you have that church, you know, this, this classic story of the church that would sing louder when they would hear the trains going by carrying all the Jews. Wow. That they needed to not be able to hear that suffering. And so that would be the same thing with banging the drums when they were sacrificing the children on the altar of uh, Molech is they didn't want to hear the baby crying because in intrinsically they know this is wrong. And so you have to basically outshout your own conscience, which in the in these cases, they are like actually physically noise wise trying yeah. to make it louder than their own conscience, or at least so they can't hear it. So what we're really talking about in this is something called the grounding problem. It's how do atheists ground their moral claims, meaning not do they know and not that they know, but how do they know? And this concept of how do we know what we know? is a study called epistemology, which, again, is a fancy word for saying, how do we know what we know? Yeah, it's just that study of knowledge. Yeah. And so what we're going to go through today is we're going to go through basically all the, not all, I don't want to say that, because I'm sure there's going to be someone that says, well, you didn't address, you know, mine. We're going to talk about some of the different ways that people try to ground this idea of objective moral values without appealing to a god. Because the problem is that laws imply a lawgiver. If we're going to say that there's a moral law or what we sometimes call moral facts, if there's a law, there has to be a lawgiver. This is the basis behind the, the design argument for God is the yes. fact that we see natural laws at play in nature. And if we see laws, there has to be a lawgiver. The idea of good implies a standard and that standard can't come from within the system. So I was trying to think of a, a, an easy way to explain this. I pictured myself stranded on a desert island. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm trying to create a unit of measurement. We'll say that I'm able to whittle out a certain piece of wood that who knows how long it is. Now, I could measure other things with that piece of wood, but I can't measure that piece of wood by that piece of wood. Say that that piece of wood, I'm going to say that measurement is a one stick length. Yeah. I can't say I know that this is a one stick length because this, the length of the stick is one stick. Mm-hmm. That would be saying, I'm taking the thing that I'm measuring and I'm using that to create the measure. Mm. Now I can take that stick and measure other things with it, but they have to be measured by something that is outside of themselves. Yeah, you need to have that outside standard. So what we're saying for this is that if we have moral laws, it means there's a moral lawgiver. And that implicitly means we can't get it from nature because if this world is what we're judging, we can't take stuff from this world, i.e. nature, and then use that to create the standard. Again, that's saying that it's circular reasoning. So, yeah. and well, and you don't see it in nature either. I mean, goodness, just put on animal planet and, you know, they, <laughs> they and it's interesting because in class, they tell you that all the time. You, you don't sort of look toward animal planet for morals 
You don't accuse a lion of murder when he takes down a zebra because they they don't have that objective morality uh, applied to them. They just go purely off instinct. So you're not going to find morals within nature. Yeah, it makes me think of the the line from oh golly, which one? Which, which one was the one that Heath Ledger played the Joker? Dark Knight Rises. I thanks. Oh gosh, I don't remember the title, but that was a good movie. That was a dark movie, man. Uh, anyway, there's a line in there that he says, and John and I kind of always joke about that. He says, "I just do things." It's like people are trying to figure out this reasoning yeah. behind why he does things. He's like, "I don't have reasons. I just do things." It's a very unsatisfying comment. Yeah. Well, I mean, because we want to have reasons for things. Yeah. And, and so he's kind of actually showing the bankruptcy mm-hmm. of this of this concept of and this is what is called the is ought fallacy mm-hmm. or the is ought problem is nature shows us what there is. So actually, I'm going to go ahead and say so this is going to be the first this is going to be one of the first things that people say. This is how we get objective moral values. This is how we get objective morality is we can look at nature. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think it's like nature, evolution. So I, I just want to highlight probably the best article. And, and I'm not saying this because I'm biased. I'm, th- I'm saying this because I really, truly think this is the best article I've ever written. It just so happens to be written by my husband, John Ferrer. If you Google nature is a jerk, <laughs> don't expect morality from it. And we'll include that in the podcast notes. And I'm, I might even just turn this into a mama bear guest post because I think it's so good. We might have to break it up because it's kind of long. This idea of can we get morality from nature? It's like, no, nature's a jerk. Mm-hmm. Don't expect morality from it. And so he has a bunch of things where he talks about kind of the is-ought problem of how nature just shows us what is. So he says, maybe you grant that nature isn't nice, but you contend it can still give us morals, right? Well, sort of. It can force us all into our thoughtless instincts and meaningless feelings, <laughs> and we can make mistake these for desires or even morality. But if you mean real morals, like moral facts and objective morality, then no, nature can't give us that. Nature can give us all sorts of non-moral facts like gravity, geography, and groundhogs, <laughs> but nature is amoral. So he goes on to say, let's see, yeah, that nature lacks all moral awareness or moral direction, and nature can't even propose things that could be true or false since nature doesn't make these claims. Mm. Nature doesn't say, love your neighbor or don't sit on porcupines. <laughs> nature has natural facts like people and porcupines. But it doesn't have prescriptive facts Mm. like love people or don't sit on porcupines. If you want to sit on porcupines, that's your business. Nature won't judge you. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. He just takes all these ideas and just really boils them down to, you know, the real if we're going to try to put it in crude, crude, not crude as in like nasty, like swearing language, but crude as in rudimentary language. He really breaks it down. And so it's this idea of, you know, sometimes people want to say, oh, well, we see altruistic behavior in certain animals. Mm-hmm. Well, we also see certain animals killing the young of their competitors. Yes. So which one are we supposed to say is moral and which one's not moral? Which one should is prescriptive, that which we should follow, versus descriptive, that which is? Yeah. Because again, remember we, we talked about you have to have a standard outside of something. People are innately judging this concept of if nature is acting morally. And they will say, and what they're doing is they're comparing it to a standard Mm -hmm. that is outside of nature. Mm -hmm. If you say that nature is having altruistic behavior, meaning that, can you think of examples that you've heard of altruistic behavior in in nature? Well, I've heard of surfers being rescued by dolphins. 
there was one guy, I, in fact, it was funny because my son and I were just watching this video. There was a, a gentleman who had been swept out of the area. He was lost in the ocean and he actually had a giant sea turtle stay with him for 15 hours. And he was basically using wow. the sea turtle as sort of this uh, flotation device until he was able to get rescued. And so you see, and, and, yeah, this, so this sea turtle wouldn't normally do sort of uh, that sort of thing. Here stayed with this guy and essentially saved his life. So you see some mm. of that within history. But then, like you say, you see other creatures who, yeah, they'll take out the competitors young or their rivals. You know, it's very animalistic. Yeah, or like in here, you know, sharks eating baby seals. Yes. <laughs> I mean, these are cute baby seals. You should know you shouldn't eat them. And so at the same time, not only do we see nature doing things that we would say are moral or immoral, and we have an outside standard by yeah. which we're judging this against uh, as should we imitate this or not? Mm -hmm. But when we see nature doing this, we don't say, like, if you see a shark eating a baby seal, you don't say bad shark. That shark should be punished. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, because, you may say bad shark, but I mean, there's, there's not really much yeah. you can do about it. It's not like you would advocate for it being punished. It's kind of like, uh, you know, when dogs get in a fight over food, you know, you smack them and, well, not smack them, but like, you know, whap their booties or something like that. My mom's dogs do this sometimes <laughs> with toys. You know, you have to punish them, but because you're trying to train them, but you're not saying you're, well, even as I say this, you don't say that they're a bad dog, but actually that's what you yell at them. <laughs> bad dog. Well, and it's so um, funny because you are, you're trying to sort of, for them, that's not bad at all. That's survival of the fittest. Yeah. That's what you do. And so, but yet we, especially with animals, you know, if your, if your dog comes and steals your sandwich, as you sit down to the couch, you know, you're going to yell at them because again, you have this moral idea of, okay, well, it's immoral for someone to steal my sandwich. And yet we're trying to put that on animals who do not, you know, have this yeah. internal moral compass. Well, it's not like you would say, you know, you need to pay penance for this. <laughs> and like, it, it, it's like, at, at some point you recognize that eh, they're just doing what an animal does. And you recognize that you try to train them, but you're not holding them to moral. You're not holding them to morals. You're just holding them to a training standard. That's different. But again, that training standard is based on something outside of nature. Yeah. <laughs> and it's outside the dog, too. He wouldn't know. So John goes on to say that uh, most naturalists, and naturalists are the people who believe that nature is all there is. We, we talk about this in chapter six of the Mama Bear book. My brain is trustworthy, according <laughs> to my brain. So naturalists, however, grant a whole range of mental activities for mankind, such as desire, language, goal-oriented behavior, and so on. Rather than haggle over that here, let's suppose, for the sake of argument, that we're right. That still doesn't give us the rich sense of morality that we know and that we normally encounter. We have no set reason for which we are made. We aren't even made at all, i.e. we're not designed, we're not created, we're not intended. We are accidental outcomes. We are glorified chemical spills. To say that one chemical spill is behaving well and another is behaving poorly assumes errantly that there is some standard of reference, standard of reference by which chemical spills should be judged. Mm. If we're just chemical spills, uh, or we're just chemical spills doing what chemical spills do. One human accident loves his neighbor. The other human accident eats his neighbor. There's no set reference to judge one as good and one as evil. And again, so John has done debates pretty extensively. If you want to look up John Ferrer and Matt Dillahunty, which we'll also include in the podcast notes, they have a, a debate at Texas A&M on this, that this was the misunderstanding over and over again mm. was people would say in response to what John is saying, that we have 
one human accident who loves his neighbor, the other human accident that eats his neighbor, and there's no <laughs> set reference to judge one is good and one is evil. Every single time, they mistook it for John saying that you can't know, which again is not what he's saying. Yeah. He's just saying you can't know how you know that. Yeah. You can't ground it. It's extensively problematic, but it is. It's that common misconception is that you're trying to say, well, I'm not capable of knowing. And it's no, no, no. There's that. It's the grounding is where do you get this? And it's interesting you mentioned that because I've heard people try to challenge that with this sort of moral materialist is, is what they consider it is where they, they agree. They go along with naturalism. They believe in materialism, all of that. But they also want to acknowledge morality as well. And they say that, well, you know, there are just animals, some animals, humans particularly, and, and sometimes other, other animals, dogs, cats, that sort of thing, that they do possess moral value and they are able to act morally. But again, that, that still fails to go deeper and say, okay, but where does this come from? It always, Leibniz always comes into my head is, is you know, you have the Kalam cosmological argument that says that for everything that exists, there has to have a cause. And Leibniz said, well, for everything that exists, there has to be a reason. There has to be an explanation. Mm. And you do see sometimes there are some atheists that say, well, it, it just, it is what it is. This is just how it is. It just sort of, there's even an appeal to Platonism saying, well, maybe just goodness or morals, they just sort of exist. And they, they even exist outside of God. They just sort of float around somewhere. Won't you unpack Platonism real quick? Because a lot of our listeners might not have heard that phrase. Okay, so Platonism or Plato, he came up with this idea that there, there are these forms and there's ideal forms. So an example that was used in class is you have a chair and there's all different sorts of chairs, but there's this, this perfect, there's perfect chairness. And so the idea that there is just this perfect form that is chairness sort of floating about Gosh, even the number seven, because I mean, you, we can think of things like seven cookies or seven pens, but sevenness, how do you, there isn't something that can be actualized. It's just sort of exists. And so for Plato, there mm -hmm. are these forms. And so there's forms like goodness. And again, there's some challenges to it that there's different sort of metaphysical ideas and that sort of thing. So folks, there are people who may not go along with Platonism, but again, this is just sort of this idea that you sometimes hear that there is sort of this goodness that that just exists. It sort of just floats there. Was Plato a, a theist or a non-theist? I don't believe he was a theist in the extent of Christianity, but he he appealed to goodness and that sort of thing. But I'd have to I'd have to dig a little deeper on whether or not he actually sort of believed in God and the concept of we think that we think. Because I was thinking like someone could try to explain Platonism as there's these concepts that exist in the mind of God. And that's how I've heard um, it explained too, is that you have some theists who say they lean more to the, the plat platonic side to where they believe mm -hmm. that there are these things that exist, like you said, in the mind of God. So this would be the idea of, think about the property of red. There's a lot of different things that we would call red, a lot of different shades of red, but it's like there's this idea that we have in our head that in order to even be considered a shade of red, it has to have this one property, but we can't really explain what that property is. Mm -hmm. So this would also go back to, we talk about this in the naturalism chapter, that everything is eventually reduced. So this is, I'm reading on page 105 to 106, where I say, mama bears, listen closely when I say this. Every hypothesis about origins, in this case, this would be like platonic origins of truth, goodness, and beauty. Everything regarding origins is eventually reduced to something that either one, has always existed, is eternal, two, needs no creator, is self-existent, and three, is sufficiently powerful to create. Aristotle calls this the first cause. Don't let anyone tell you that their first cause is more scientific than yours. None of us can recreate the beginning of the universe 
So all of us must take our respective first causes on faith. So I think that we could go back to this concept of first cause or just the initial things that instead of saying in the beginning was God, that someone who's appealing to this kind of Platonistic thing would say, in the beginning was these eternal concepts of goodness, mm-hmm. of morality, and that, that that existed before everything else. But again, you're just picking which thing is eternal, self-existent, and able to create. Well, the able to create part is more like, you know, origins of the universe and not concepts. But we're at least getting back to something that is self-existent and eternal, that doesn't need explanation. Yeah. Which I think is problematic because it's like, why would you pick that one instead of a concept like God that actually makes more sense? We could go a lot more. Again, I would recommend reading John's article on nature is a jerk because I think it's really funny. And I think it's a really good explanation of how we cannot get our morals from nature. It goes through just the idea of the is-ought problem. It goes through the concept of evolution. Can we get it from evolution? Because if you look at evolution, it doesn't give you truth. It gives you survival. Especially if we were going to go the evolutionary route, if, if all we're trying to do is perpetuate our genes, then, you know, stuff like rape becomes actually morally good because that's actually a survival yeah. thing that the, the, the most powerful are passing on their genes. And I don't think anybody would be like, yeah, two thumbs up. That's a great idea. No, we, not at all. No, not at all. Yes, let's be clear about that. Uh, but that's what you get from evolution is concepts like that that have to be considered good if you're using that as your standard of good. And the second one that I see a lot of people talk about is the concept of pleasure and pain. So that which is good is that which causes the most pleasure. And that which is evil is that which causes the most pain. So Amy, can you think of any flaws in this argument? Well, goodness, lots of people have things that give them pleasure that are are awful. And so we can't use that as a grounding because then pretty much anything, as long as it makes you happy, is permissible. Well, it's also this idea that pleasures aren't going to conflict because what do you do when you have conflicting pleasures? Because I mean, this is essentially what we have to teach children Mm -hmm. is you need to share the toy. Yes. You can't have all the pleasure of the toy all the time. Mm -hmm. You have to look at the pleasure of, you know, your play buddy Mm -hmm. here. Now, the guy that John debated and uh, Matt Dillahunty would say that the reason why sharing is good is because then it's going to aid in sharing towards me. Oh, so that kind of ties into, because Dawkins had this quote that said, morality is nothing but disguised self-interest. So that's kind of interesting because it kind of plays into that, that really is, it's good because in a way it just benefits me. It's kind of this egotistical focus. Yeah. But again, I don't think this is really a good way to go because you really have to have, there's a lot of goods out there. Mm -hmm. In the previous podcast, we defined two things, which were consequentialism and pragmatism. So consequentialism, just think of the word consequence. If it's a good outcome, then the action is good. Yeah. Pragmatism is if it works, it's good. So they're real similar concepts. So this idea of, well, if I do this towards them, then they're going to do it towards me. That's a real pragmatic view. However, there's a lot of things that we would consider good where you're never going to have that done towards you. Mm -hmm. Say, giving your life for somebody to protect someone. Yeah. If you're innately giving up your life to protect someone, that is never going to come back on you. There is no reason to be able to call that good. Yeah. I mean, unless you're looking just for a hero status. But um, (laughs) but again, even that, that's more of selfish motives. But yeah, no, you're right. Well, even even with that, say that would we say that if someone was out in the woods and they were protecting someone, no one was ever going to hear about it. We'll say that it was a they saved their life for a baby mm-hmm. who's not going to remember this. Mm-hmm. 
they'll never get the hero status. They're never going to have that conferred onto them. Was that action good? Mm. And there's very few people that will say, no, it's not good. But according to the consequentialism, I'll say according to pragmatism or this idea that I do good things or I, I do things so that they will come back on me. That can't be the basis of this because you just cut out all the reasoning behind it. But yet we still call that action good. How do we call that good? Right. Which would bring us also into, this is the one that Dillahoney, the guy that my husband debates, mm. would go into. And this is the concept of well-being. So the pleasure and pain, I think that is difficult because some things that cause pleasure for one person will not cause pleasure for another. And so you have to choose who's going to get the pleasure, mm. who's going to get the pain. The concept of well-being is kind of what he harps on. And if you watch the debate, you'll see him harp on this. And that's this idea of kind of flourishing. Ah, okay. And again, you have to define what flourishing is. So this is an example that I want to use. And this also goes back to the pragmatism and the consequentialism. Do the ends justify the means? And if it works, was it good? Mm. And this is a conference that I've tried to find where this, I've tried to find the, I heard about it from someone and I, and I can't find where the, the original source is. So I apologize for that. But it's one of the things that number one, there were horrific experiments that were done with the Jews during the Holocaust. Can we all call all agree on that? Very much so. Yes. And there's a lot of people that were killed during the Holocaust because they were viewed as degenerates. Mm. I.D. you didn't just have the Jews. You had people that were that you had homosexuals that were killed. You had people with mental retardation. You had people with I mean, shoot. I mean, Hitler went off. He had something called the degenerate art show where he took a lot of the kind of more modernist painters that didn't go the the classical route of like, you know, painting the human form in in a really almost like photorealistic landscape. And they went more the like the expressionist kind of thing. And to this day, it was the most well-attended art show. But I'm pretty sure like all those artists were sent to concentration camps because they were considered degenerate. And so he wanted to show what does it look like for someone to be degenerate? Mm. And ironically, it was the most well-attended art show in all time. Mm. So we have a lot of people those with diseases, those with mental handicaps that were killed. So what are they finding a couple generations later, do you think, in in Germany? What is now? I'm on the edge of my seat. What did they find? They found that uh, health had improved amongst the general population. Really? Because the people with the diseases, the people that were different, all got killed. Oh, of course. And so they're having to grapple with this idea of we're seeing benefits. Yeah. From what happened. Yeah, it's that eugenics playing out. They're actually saying that, you know, there was some basis to this. Yes. So eugenics, the word eugenics means good genes, the prefix U, E, U, E, I can't remember. And then genics, genes, good genes. It's the idea of taking the bad genes out of the gene pool mm. and keeping the good genes in the gene pool. So that was basically what the, the, the a lot of the stuff in the Holocaust was based on is let's find the degenerates, mm-hmm. the ones with the bad genes. And let's take them out of the gene pool. And here we are a couple generations later, and all of a sudden we're discovering, hey, the population, the health of the populations is actually better than it used to be. This is a really awkward benefit. Mm -hmm. So let's look at the idea of consequentialism and pragmatism. Were there, in some ways, good consequences that came from that? Uh, Yeah, there were some. But it's they didn't come about from a very good way. So you can't actually call that good. I don't know of yeah. anybody that would actually say, oh, yeah, so that was a good idea. Yeah. So I, actually, I think you're right. I don't think consequentialism works here, but pragmatism does. The idea of did this work? Yeah. It actually did. 
which is a scary concept because if, if you're going down the pragmatist route, and I've actually heard people start to talk about this. In fact, there's a professor called Dr. Pianca. He's also known as Dr. Death. Really? That is a tenured professor at UT Austin. One of the girls I was in at Biola with, her daughter took a class with him and he openly advocates. You can't talk about God there, but he will openly advocate that we need to kill off 95% of the world's population. Good night. In order to save the planet. Mm. That would be this idea of pragmatism of like, what's going to work? We're becoming over, in his mind, we're becoming overpopulated. We can't even say these ideas are just people having, you know, mind games and no one actually believes this. No, there's a tenured professor at UT Austin that teaches this. Yeah. Gosh. And I'm sure he's not the only one. I mean, you look at other colleges and things that are coming out of them. It's yeah, there's some, there's some scary stuff being taught. Yeah. Or you look at, oh golly, what's his name? Who wrote a red as a pig as a dog as a boy? Oh, he has actually created some of the ethics textbooks. And you reference this, I think, in the notes where he says that he thinks that he goes beyond late term abortion and he goes into infanticide. Yes. The idea that you should be able to kill a child up until the uh, up until like maybe around two years old. Wesley Smith. Oh, is he the one who wrote the book? Yeah, the book, The Rat is. Okay, maybe that's not who I'm thinking of. So the guy that I'm thinking of, he teaches that bestiality is okay as long as the animal is consenting. How does an animal consent to that? I don't that know. That is crazy. Uh, In Nancy Piercy's book, Love Thy Body, she references sort of this dystopian story. And it's about that the age to whether or not you want to have an abortion can is extended not only while the child's in the womb, but up to the age of 12. And so this story mm. is actually told from a young boy's perspective that there's this sort of abortion wagon that comes by almost like, I don't, I don't want to say like an ice cream truck. It's more like an ambulance that they'll, they'll yeah. come down the street and the kids are like the second they hear it, the kids go and hide because they don't know whether or not it's their parents that said, you know, I'm kind of over this parenting thing. Let me just call <gasps> and, and be done. Is this, this a classic short story? Yes. Yeah. I feel like I've heard this before. What's it called again? You know, I'm going to, I've got my love that body book here. I'm going to have to look it up really quick, but yeah, it just that as a mom, you know, reading that story is like, Oh my gosh, that's just awful. But again, this is what you get from the idea of pragmatism and consequentialism or this idea of, so the idea that either the ends justify the means or that which produces a good outcome is good or that that which causes the most pleasure for one people think about maybe the the parent said, I'm kind of over this parenting thing. I would really like to spend my time volunteering for the homeless. Yeah. If I still have to take care of these kids, that's two kids that are fed and taken care of. But if I can kill these kids then that's a whole lot of homeless people I can take care of. According to that standard, which we would agree is a really bad standard, is not one that we think we should ground our morality in. If it causes the most well-being or the most pleasure for the most amount of people, then that's considered good. Again, whatever method you use, you have to see, does this apply across the board? And if it doesn't, then I don't think we can do it. Another one would be common sense. And this is one of the ones that I I hear, actually, I hear Matt Dillahunty talking about this. I hear a lot of atheists talking about this. And again, they're they're responding to what Dawkins says about how this mischaracterization of Christians saying that you can't know good without God. And they're like, of course, we know what good is. That's just dumb. And again, that's fine. And I I do believe we have a common sense. And, And what was the passage that you read in the previous podcast? I think it's worth reading again. Oh, that would be Romans 2, 14 and 15. And it talks about how uh, even the Gentile can act morally because he has nature written, this moral standard written on his heart. Give me one sec. 
Okay, so Mm -hmm. indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times defending them. So uh, again, this argument of this good and good and evil is common sense. I would not say it's common sense. I would say scripture talks about where it comes from. And again, we're not saying, can you know? We're saying, how do you know? And you can't appeal to common sense without having a reason why it's there in the first place. So Amy, did you find the the spot in Love Thy Body that had that story? Yes, it is kind of referred to, or she references a euthanasia van, which is actually a, a comment by, there was a, a columnist by the name of Katie Hopkins that she thought that there should just be this option for people who don't want to live anymore. You should just be able to put in a phone call and the euthanasia van will pull up to your door and finish you off for you. You know, they'll just take care of it, they'll dispose of the body, that sort of thing. Her stance was that... So it's like the opposite of the suicide hotline. It's like, yeah, <laughs> I'd like to order one suicide. Piece. Yeah. And her um, feelings were, you know, we have too many old people. So let's just mm. make this an option for them that when they just get, you know, too old in age, and then you could just call them up and they can come to your house and you'll be, uh, you'll be taken out. But it's, it's an interesting reference. I'm looking here that, so it's based off this sci-fi story by a science fiction writer by the name of Philip K. Dick, who wrote this sort of dystopian future to where children could literally just be aborted up until I believe the age of 12 here. So yes, these children were just kind of frightened and they would, he said that, you know, you'd have this child who was bravely playing out in the front yard and digging, just trying to pretend that this pending reality that his parents could just up and decide one day that they didn't want him anymore and they can phone up the van and be done with him. That's pretty dark. But again, when when you're trying to look at naturalistic ethics, meaning ethics that are based on naturalism, that are based on what do we see in nature or that are based on who does this cause pleasure and pain for? Whose well-being is this, you know, affecting? Again, whose well-being are we talking about? I think one of the arguments that they make, and in fact, I'm looking at this section in the book right now that you're talking about, is it says, uh, uh, according to Dick's fictionalized America, lawmakers kept moving the line from one arbitrary stopping point to the next until finally they decided the right age was 12 years old, the age when you can do algebra. Mm. That's when you have the cognitive capacity to qualify as a person. And up to the age of 12, then, children were pre-persons and could be killed for any reason. If parents decided they did not want their child anymore, they called the, alo- the local abortion center. It would send a van to collect the child like a dog catcher and take him or her to be euthanized. The, the van was even equipped with a good humor style jingle playing nursery school songs, which that's, that's just dark. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so again, this idea of a lot of times people want to make these arbitrary points of Again, what is well-being? Who's well-being? How many people is this benefiting? Or in this case, which we see happening today with the abortion debate, when does this person qualify as a person? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, why not make it when they do algebra? Yeah, I would be done for if that's the case. I'll be straight on. <laughs> There's no hope for me <laughs> you know, if I that counts. <laughs> All these positions are arbitrary. So it's fine if you want to have arbitrary things, but if we're dealing with objective moral values, meaning true for all people at all times and all places, then you have to have something that is objective, something that is true, again, for all people at all times and all places, not something that can be changed based on the situation and all the other explanations for how can we ground goodness without God 
namely nature, pleasure and pain, well-being, the consequences, or whether or not it works. Those are the consequentialism or the pragmatism. All of these things, or even evolution, which gives you survival. None of these things will give you something that's objective. You still have to get over the is-ought problem of what there is versus what ought to be. And you cannot get an ought, as in we ought to do this or ought not to do that, from nature. Yeah. So this is kind of like a real boiled down version of this argument. So we want to talk about how do you reinforce, this is a lot of heady, meaty concepts that we just went through. Amy, so what are some of the ideas that you came up with? How do we bring this down to a kid level? And how can we kind of do this with our kids to where they can start having these categories? Yeah. And I think, again, we're agreeing with Dawkins here. And I think this is important. Probably some of the best ways just a preliminary is we got to be careful that we aren't trying to use these labels as synonymous. Like when we're saying, oh, well, he's just an atheist. You know, that when we say things like that, that sort of has this implied meaning of, oh, well, they can't be good. They can't be nice. They can't Mm. do these things. So we have to be careful that we don't just haphazardly apply these labels or, oh, well, they're, that's a Christian company or they're a Christian and that sort Mm. of thing. Because again, you know, Christians can fall short. We see that constantly throughout the Bible. Atheists can also act very morally, even though they don't believe in a God. So we have to be careful that we don't, we don't become sort of lazy when we're lumping everybody into this group. Yeah. Or uh, like we said in the last podcast, people who claim to be Christians aren't always Christians. And this is not a no true Scotsman. It's if you look at scripture that defines Christianity and the submission to God, to God, there are ways to judge whether or not someone kind of is a Christian. Not that we should go out and be judging and say you are, you aren't. That is for God alone. But at the same time, not everyone who calls themselves Christian is a Christian. In fact, scripture talks about this, that when people come and say, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and do miracles and healings? And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Unless we're going to accuse Jesus himself of the new true Scotsman, we have to acknowledge that there is some kind of standard or protocol. I don't want to say protocol. That sounds so cold. What, what, Just what using your discernment. You know, I mean, we're even told that like if people come and bring us teachings, even if this is a pastor that you've been listening to for your whole life, you love this person, you still need to be discerning about what they're teaching. So it's just... Yeah. It's just par for the course. Yeah. So there, I think I say in the book, there's no autopilot in the Christian life. You can't just label stuff either all safe or all dangerous. You can't label, you know, atheist good, Christian, or atheist bad, Christian good, because there's no atheist so bad that you can't get pieces of truth from them. Mm-hmm. And there is no Christian so good that you're not going to get some piece of heresy or lie from them. It doesn't happen. Yeah. So like you said, it's intellectually lazy. That was a good point for how to reinforce this with your kids is, to not use labels to connote badness Mm -hmm. as if making like atheist and bad is synonymous somehow because it's not. Yeah. And I've even had to do this with my kids too because sometimes they'll come home and just sort of make this offhanded comment and I have to be like, okay, well, wait a second though. Just because of X doesn't necessarily mean Y. It's just kind of helping them think through, especially if, you know, we've been insulted or we're frustrated or we're angry. It's really easy just to kind of fall into that trap. Another kind of fun way to sort of open up the conversation when we're talking about how the nature doesn't give us moral teaching, sort of a fun way to do that real easy with your kiddos is to go on nature walks. If you've got a park nearby or gosh, if you're one of the lucky ones that are by woods, that sort of thing, take your kids out, let them go and just interact with nature. And what you want to do, and this may not happen the first time or so you go out with them, but kind of watch 
how they interact with nature. Like if, gosh, here in Texas, it's like hot nine months out of the year. So, you know, if you, <laughs> if you see your kid, you know, taking a worm and picking it off the, the hot sidewalk that's roasting it and they set it in the grass, you know, it's a great opportunity to sort of pick up on that because here they're acting morally toward this creature and you say, oh, you know, that is awesome that you did that. But what, what made you want to do that? Why did you do that? And, you know, they'll probably give their reasoning of, oh, you know, it was probably hurting them or, or that sort of thing. And then you can ask them, okay, well, what in nature, what if we're seeing, what has told you that that's how you should treat other creatures or that's how you should treat the world? Maybe they go up and they're, they're you just catch them sort of picking up trash and putting things away. They just are, are doing sort of these nice things. It's what in the in nature has taught you how to do that. And most of the time they'll kind of mm. sit there and be a little flummoxed, like, well, I know maybe this just seems like how nature teaches you to poop wherever you feel. Right. Like. <laughs> That's what nature teaches you. Oh, okay. My my son's gonna hate me for telling this story. But there <laughs> I'm excited all Oh my gosh. I'll, I'll, he shall remain nameless. But we had an incident. We didn't have a dog in our backyard and we had it had a fenced in backyard and we kept finding piles in our backyard. And we're like, who, what is happening? Who, you know, is there a dog getting under the, <laughs> the fence? We couldn't find it out until, and he, gosh, he was like five. He was little until we caught him one day and we said, what are you doing? And he goes, well, I wanted to be a rabbit <laughs> and rabbits go outside. Well, there you go. And we're just like, okay, that's great. Please go inside from now on. So, oh, oh that's funny. But yeah, so it's, yeah, it's you know, I mean, that's just, huh? Doing what nature does. Oh my gosh! Yes, that that was a, a fun couple of weeks. Not that trying that's to moral or immoral, mystery pooper. But yeah, that's. Hilarious. But it's it's taking time to sort of have them see that you know nature doesn't tell us how we should treat others. It's something else. It has to be outside of that, and that's where you can kind of mm-hmm. bridge the gap and sort of take. And Paul Copen suggests taking more of this gracious approach, saying, "Okay, when we're looking at moral facts on how we ought to behave." Christianity offers the best grounds for why we have this, why this is true, and whereas the others yeah. just fall short. And it's just a great, easy way to sort of bring this conversation up with smaller kids, help them to understand. Whereas with your older ones, you know, you can go a lot deeper with them. Yeah. Which book is it? That, which of Copan's books? Oh. Is this, is God a moral monster? Uh, yes, this God is moral monster. Yep. So that's just a few quick, easy ways. Another one, we live in a culture today that is very much against sort of objective standards as a whole. They don't want that. It's stifling. Mm -hmm. It's mean, that sort of thing. But there is purpose. There's design for it. And one of the, another easy way for, to help your kids sort of pick up on objective standards and see how they are constructive is just any of these competition shows that they have out now. Gosh, they've got fashion shows, dancing with the stars, or there's another one that, so you think you can dance. That one's a pretty good one. There's craft shows. One that I like is called Making It. It's with Amy Poehler. And she's just funny. But, you know, all of these shows, the the purpose is, okay, you can make things, but there's a standard. There's something that you have to meet. So it's great to have your kids see this to where, okay, we have the standard. We're trying to meet it. And they can see how objective standards are a good thing. That's how you determine, you know, winners and losers. Gosh, our culture today, they're very much against that. Everybody gets a trophy is kind of the <laughs> kind of the belief. But they can help them see that, okay, that this objective standards do exist and that these are good things. And so those are just sort of accessible ways that you can show them. No, I think those are all really good. And just showing how it's like a person wouldn't know if they had made it, you know, or in that other show nailed it unless they had something to which they could compare it. Right. So when we look at morality, we're saying, what are we comparing this Mm -hmm. to? Because again, nature, you can't say, since we're part of nature, we can't say we're comparing ourselves with ourselves. We're comparing nature with nature because that, again, that's, you know, saying 
This stick is one stick long. So how, how long? I know it's one stick long because it's one stick. Mm -hmm. You can't compare it with itself. You have to have something outside of it to compare it to. And every other possible way of grounding the idea of good takes something within the closed system mm -hmm. and compares it with itself. And that's just inherently illogical. You have to have something outside of the system to which you can compare. And like you said, the design shows, they have what they call design briefs saying, this is what you're trying to accomplish. Or here's an example on, on Nailed It, where they're trying to actually imitate whatever yeah. it is. How do you know how close you are to, to the original unless you have the original? Now, from a theistic perspective, from a Judeo-Christian perspective, we are able to ground this concept of good by saying that God is good. And he has given laws, he's given precepts. And again, this goes into like, which of the Mosaic laws are we talking about, which I'm actually working on a paper for Biola on this right now. Mm. People say, well, you've got stuff in there about bestiality and eating shellfish. How do you know which one? And so, I mean, there, if you're just going to read it and not try to understand it, that's a legitimate point. But I think a better option is to try to read to understand rather than just trying to read to... You have to have more than a cursory understanding of what's actually going on in these laws, but we can't get into that right now. But Christianity is, the, is one of the few, or just anything that considers a standard outside of itself, i.e. a God is the only one that can say this is an objective grounding for what we consider to be good. In terms of even looking at a lot of the different world religions that Christianity really has that standard and has a good standard. So in some cases, an intuitive standard, Yeah, I would say. And it really shows the dangers, too, of subjectivism, relativism, which is covered in the Mama Bear book. Mm -hmm. If that is true, if, if subjectivism is true, and everything is just personal preference, then there is no inherent value that anybody has. Nothing has inherent value. It really does end yep. up crumbling down into this nihilistic mindset to where nothing has meaning. There's no telos there. There's no purpose. Mm -hmm. You know, our culture is very PC at the moment. They want to say, oh, well, this is a good thing because then everybody's a winner. And it's, no, you don't understand. There is no winner. There's no good. There's, there's nothing. It's just important to help our kids see that while we may want to, we may like the idea that everybody is a winner, this, it just doesn't hold up. I hope that helps you understand the grounding problem and it helps answer the question in Richard Dawkins chapter five of can man be good without God? That, as we said, that was the wrong question to be asked. Uh, it's not that uh, can man be good or can man know good? It's how do how does a person know what is good? And we would say that we know what is good by the fact that God is good. And so we can compare the standards against goodness itself. So I hope that was helpful. Amy, would you like to pray us out? Lord, we thank you that we are able to gather together and once again, dive into your word. I want to lift up these parents. They're in the thick of it. They're, they're working jobs. They're tidying up houses. They're raising little ones. They're dealing with teenagers, Lord. And the world is constantly at their doors in music and TV and just amongst their friends that are preaching into them philosophies and ideas that are not true. They're not edifying. And they end up just corroding so much to include morality and value, just stealing it away, Lord. And so we pray for a hedge of protection over these families that you will help keep this stuff out. But I mean, even then, we know that some of this resistance is good. It's profitable. Even some of this pain is profitable because it helps people grow. So more importantly, Lord, I just want to pray that these parents are encouraged to dive in deeper, to study this more, to help equip their kids to be able to encounter these false ideas, to be able to debate them, to be able to stand firm in truth, Lord, 
So that way they won't become one of those statistics of these 66% of teens who are falling away from the faith that instead they're going to say, no, you know what? I know what is true. I know what is best. And that is you, Lord. In your holy name, amen. Amen. This has been a Mama Bear Apologetics recording. To learn more about Mama Bear Apologetics, please visit us on the web at www.mamabearapologetics.com. We hope you learned a little more about how to sift through ideas, accept the good, reject the bad, and now you can go teach your kids to do the same. Do you have any questions or maybe some ideas about future podcast episodes? Send us an email to askthemamabears at gmail.com and we'll do our best. Rise up, ladies. Rise up, Mama Bears. We are all in this together.